Good morning, Grace. This morning, our reading is from Luke 2, verses 21 through 40. In the pew, uh, if you're using the Pew Bible, you'll find that it's on page 857. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord. Every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought, the brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed and a sword will pierce through your own soul also so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. This is the word of God. Today we are jumping back in to the Gospel of Luke the Gospel of Luke. Before we, before we get into the sermon, let me just put a plug for, for this pamphlet out in the hallway. There's copies of this. This is called Evidences of Grace. 
This is um, kind of a recap of the ways that God was at work in our church family last year. Kind of a snapshot of many different ministries and, and kind of highlights from the ministry year. Uh, not everything is not exhaustive, but uh, we believe that this will be an encouragement to you as you read through it and reflect on how God's been at work, uh, evidence of His grace at work here in Grace Baptist Church. So pick one of those up. Those are for you to, to enjoy and be encouraged by. Luke chapter 2, we're in the gospel of Luke. This is one of the four eyewitness accounts of the life of Jesus. These are not written hundreds of years later. They were written by those who were with him, who saw him, who who were with the, the, the ministry of Jesus, who saw the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. And what Luke in particular shows us is that that Jesus came to offer good news for all kinds of people. Not just a certain segment of population, not just Israel, but Jews and Gentiles. No matter background, no matter social status, he he wants us to see nothing prohibits the good news of Jesus from entering and transforming a person's life. Today, this text before us, we're going to learn about faithfulness through hardship. Faithfulness through hardship. Here's what I think we all know intuitively, to some degree. When things are going well in life, it seems easier to to live the kind of life we want to live. Whether you're Christian or not, when, when, when your relationships feel like they're solid, like things are going well relationally, when, when things are going well at work, when your finances are healthy and strong, it, it feels kind of, it's easier to be kind to others. It's easier to share if someone has a need. Oh, well, I, I, have, I have enough. I can share with you. It's easier, easier to overlook an offense. Right? Our relationship's going well. My spouse says something. My kids say I can overlook that offense. It's easier to deal with an inconvenience. But things change when life gets harder, don't they? When your kids are fighting, when your boss is very demanding, when your marriage feels strained, when finances are tight, when a friend wounds you, now all of a sudden kindness kind of seems impossible. Like it's, it's like eat or be eaten. Like I got to do what I got to do. You know, give money, share, not when things are so tight. Offenses feel even more painful. Today we, we learn from God's word. I want to show you from God's word how, how we can be faithful through hardships. That it's possible that when life gets harder, we can still be faithful to God because ultimately he has been faithful to us. Let's look at this text before us, Luke 2, 21 to 40. There's three lessons I want to share with you. Lesson number one, you can be faithful to God in seasons of hardship. We pick up the story right after the birth of Jesus. We went through all of this at, at, at Advent in December. Jesus is now born. And immediately, verse 21, immediately we see that his parents, Mary and Joseph, they're obeying the law of the Lord. They're very attentive to what God says and doing it. In fact, five times in this passage, it mentions how Mary and Joseph 
obeyed. They did everything according to the law. They obeyed the word of God. First thing they do is they obey the command of God through the mouth of Gabriel, and they name this child Jesus. They could have named him anything they wanted. That It's their child. No, God said his name shall be Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. They name him Jesus. Then they obey the word of God in the Old Testament by circumcising Jesus on the eighth day. Then it says in verse 22, Mary and Joseph bring baby Jesus up to the temple in Jerusalem according to the law of Moses to present him and dedicate him to the Lord. This would have been when he was about 40 days old now. So a little over a month old. And then verse 23, notice, as it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. That's a, that's a quote. It's a direct quote from Exodus chapter 13. We studied Exodus last year. In Exodus, God said, look, I'm bringing my people out of Egypt. I'm bringing them out of slavery. And so here's what I'm requiring in the law. When you have a firstborn, you're going to take that firstborn child and you're going to take it to the tabernacle or later the temple and you're going you're to you're kind of offer it as a sacrifice. But here's how you're going to do that. Instead of offering the child because he doesn't want us to kill our children, you redeem that child for a, a, another sacrifice, a lamb or a goat, in place of that child. And what that means is you get to redeem the child back. You get to take that child back. And what it symbolizes is the family is saying, this child belongs to the Lord. And really what it's saying is, the entire family, we belong to the Lord. And that's what Mary and Joseph are doing here. And Luke makes it, wants to give us very clear and a very clear account, Moses, I'm sorry, Mary and Joseph are doing exactly what the law of the Lord required of them. They take God's commands seriously and they obey them fully. This is significant. Jesus had God-fearing parents. Not perfect parents, but godly parents. We know this to be true, that parents have a tremendous impact on their children, for good or for bad. And the truth is, all of us are imperfect parents. Anybody here want to claim to be a perfect parent? All right, good. Whew. God did not call Mary and Joseph to be perfect parents. They had a perfect child. And yet they were not perfect parents. But he did call them to be faithful parents. God used Mary and Joseph in the life of Jesus even as a baby and as he grew up as a boy. That God used these parents to shape him so he became strong and grew in spiritual maturity. In fact, it says in verse 40, he grew in wisdom and became strong. That's directly connected to their parenting. So let me ask you, parents, are you aware of the incredible gift that it is to be able to shape a child and model humility, sacrificial love, obedience, and faith for them? Is it hard? Yup. None of my children are in here, so I can say it's so hard. <laughs> Lord, is it hard? I love my kids. It may be the hardest calling in the world. It's a struggle, but is it worth it? Yeah, we know it is. 
to be able to raise a child in a home where they can see how desperately you need to rely on God so that there'll be a greater likelihood to help them see how desperately they need to rely on God, that's priceless. Parents, do your children see your commitment to the word of God no matter the cost? Following God's word now in this culture increasingly will make your kids wonder, are we weirdos? Is our family freak? Are we freaks? Why are we doing this? Are you willing to say this and do it joyfully and do it with a sense of, of like it's compelling? I don't do this grudgingly. I'm not making you do it. No, that the joy of the Lord gives me the ability to say this is what it looks like to follow Jesus. No matter the cost, we lay down guidelines and, and nothing gets in the way of worshiping King Jesus, no matter how appealing this or that is. What do your children learn about God by watching you walk with God? God used Mary and Joseph to help Jesus fulfill the law of God perfectly, even as a child. This is theologically significant. Jesus himself will later say, when he is an adult and he's preaching in Matthew 5, he says, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. In other words, Jesus did not come to say, I'm not dealing with the law. The law is old-fashioned. No, he came to be the great law keeper. That was part of his role as Savior and Redeemer. He had to fulfill all the obligations of the law so that when he went to the cross, he could rightfully take our place, those of us who have not obeyed his law. We sang this earlier, come behold the wondrous mystery, he the perfect son of man, in his living, in his suffering, never trace of stain of sin. See the true and better Adam come to save the hellbound man, Christ the great and sure fulfillment of the law, in him we now stand. Jesus Jesus satisfies all the demands of the law so that when he went to the cross, the perfect law keeper dies in the place of lawbreakers and he becomes our substitute. Jesus had to take the punishment for our lawbreaking, which is death. Death. And now that Jesus obeyed the law of Moses, even as a baby all the way to an adult, now we are no longer under the law. We're under the law of Christ. We're under the law of grace. Grace. We're still called to follow Jesus in obedience and faith, but we're not under the law of Moses. And we can thank God for, for the faithfulness of Mary and Joseph that they played an important part in ensuring that Jesus fully obeyed the law. Now, how does this relate to being faithful to God in seasons of hardship? You might look at Mary and Joseph and go, well... Maybe it was easy for them to be faithful to God. They had a perfect child. I mean, good grief. How easy is that? He never talked back. He, never, he was never rude. He was never, you know, he didn't throw tantrums. What is that like? It's like my dreams. Sorry. Right? An adult, he became an adult, right? It connected well. All the things perfect. But no, no, they didn't just have it made. It's not like, oh, oh, it was paying for Mary and Joseph. No. What? No, look at verse 24. What offering did they have to offer in the temple? 
two turtle doves or pigeons, right? That's not the normal offering. That's not what Exodus says. Initially, Exodus says you are to bring a lamb, the firstborn lamb, the, the lamb that is spotless, the perfect lamb. But the law made provision. If you are so poor you can't provide a lamb, then you can provide two turtle doves, two birds. What does that tell us? It tells us that Jesus wasn't born into a middle class family. He was born into a poor family. Mary and Joseph had financial struggles. They came time to obey the law of Moses, and they're, and they're looking at what they have, and they go, There's, we, uh, we don't have a lamb. We can't afford that. We literally can't afford that. We have given birth to the Son of God, and all we can afford are two birds. Jesus was born into a family of poverty. Mary and Joseph had to learn to be faithful to God in seasons of hardship. They literally had to flee to Egypt for two years as Herod is killing all the babies. No, they experienced hardships. Pastor Tabidi in D.C., a friend of mine, he, he offers several reflections on what it means that Jesus was born into poverty. He says this, one, poverty is not a sin and is not shameful in itself. Do you believe that? Number two, poverty does not prevent a person from worshiping God. He literally made provision for those who are poor. Number three, poverty does not necessarily doom a person to poverty forever. Mary and Joseph didn't stay in this condition forever. Number, whatever the, ne the next one, poverty does not excuse unrighteousness. Just because you're poor doesn't mean Mary and Joseph could steal to get what they needed. No. And last one, poverty is a cross that God entrusts to some for a season and we can be faithful in it. What we see here is Mary and Joseph learning to be faithful in the midst of their financial hardship, in the midst of the struggles of parenting, even parenting a, a, a child like Jesus. And here's the thing, hardships are exactly that, they're hard. And yet God often uses hardships in our lives to shape us into people who will humbly submit to his word, who are willing to walk by faith and not by sight, and who will trust the heart of God even when we don't understand the will of God. You can be faithful to God in seasons of hardship. Lesson number two. You can be faithful to God in seasons of waiting. Mary and Joseph, they're learning to be faithful to God in the midst of their hardship, their financial struggle. And then we're introduced to Simeon and Anna, who are faithful to God in the midst of their hardship, which was basically waiting. Look at verse 25. Simeon. There's a man in Jerusalem named Simeon. He was righteous and devout, and he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. That language is taken right from the prophet Isaiah who foretells the coming Messiah, the coming Savior. And the Holy Spirit revealed to Simeon that he would not see death until he saw the Lord's Christ, the Lord's Messiah. And the implication here that we get from this is that Simeon has been waiting a long time, years, 
Day after day, he would come into the temple and with, with great anticipation. Is this the day? And then he'd go home, probably disappointed. It's not the day. Anyone ever take a trip and, and had a lot of anticipation about it? Right? And, well, it doesn't matter. Weekend trip, vacation, big trip. Anyone ever get excited about a trip you're about to have? Thank you. <laughs> Regina and I are tracking. Last year, my family in God's providence, we were able to travel to, to Egypt to visit my extended family back in Egypt. And all the details came together, the logistics and the financial things and everything. And I had to prepare for a wedding that I was doing there. And our kids were so excited to see my family in Egypt. And, and we were going to get to see the sights. And as the trip got closer, we got more and more excited, right? More and more anticipation. But look, we, we had a date. We knew it was coming, we knew it was five months away, four months away, three days away, one day away. Simeon did not have a date. God made it clear, you'll see the Christ, but I'm, I'm not going to give you any date. You're going to have no idea when it is. You're going to have to be righteous and devout, not knowing. Not knowing. And it's not like he's a priest. This is an ordinary guy. He's seeking to live an upright, faithful life, and he finds himself waiting on the Lord, fighting not to give up hope. Same with Anna. Hers is even more drawn out, her struggle even harder. It says in verse 37, she had been married for seven years, and then her husband dies tragically. It then proceeds to tell us that she lived as a widow until she was 84. Your Bible probably has a note there saying that it could, it could be read in the Greek. She lived for 84 more years. She experienced incredible suffering and sorrow the vast majority of her life. To be a widow in this society was a huge struggle. She faced hardships physically because she was alone. She faced hardships financially. She didn't have a, a, a husband to provide for her. She faced hardships spiritually. Most people would, would have probably shunned her because they, must have, they assumed God must have cursed you because your husband died so early. And yet what do we find this woman doing? It says day after day, she kept going from the, doing, to the temple. She did not depart from the temple. She was devoting herself to the worship of God, to the service of God. By the way, this is just another example of, of how Luke highlights the dignity of women in the life and ministry of Jesus. Luke, 43 times, 43 references to women in, the, in his gospel, more than any other gospel writer, and, and it stands in sharp contrast to the attitude toward women in the ancient world. Anna did not have any promises of God to see the Messiah. Not like Simeon. She had even less to go on, and yet she quietly, faithfully devotes herself to God. And she has this ministry of prayer, Verse 37, with fasting and prayer, night and day. We have an underrated view of the ministry of prayer, don't we? How do I know? Because I spend a lot of time with you. I spend a lot of time with church members, especially those as they get older, our older saints. 
And I've heard older saints say that, that they're so discouraged because they're not able to serve God like they used to. They feel useless. Look at Anna. Anna was convinced that even though she couldn't be involved in children's ministry anymore, even though she was, maybe she was so old she couldn't get up the stairs to go in the choir anymore, all she could do was devote herself to the ministry of prayer, and she was convinced this is meaningful ministry. Can I talk to you older saints as someone who is younger, and I do this with respect, and I submit to you in reverence to Christ, as you get older and as your body slows down, will you have the perspective of Anna and see the incredible value of prayer that your life is not wasted, your life still has purpose, and your life still has meaning? We had members here years ago. Their names were Dale and Helen Farley. They're both now with the Lord. Dale was a pastor for many years. Both were very active in their, in their younger years in ministry, all kinds of ministry. But in the later years, they were homebound. And they could have thought, woe is me. I'm all washed up. I can't get out of the house. But no, what they decided was that, that God was, was, was shifting their ministry focus. And they devoted themselves to prayer. And they would pray for church members by name. And how do I know? Because they would call us, wouldn't they? And they would call me. And Helen would call me. Helen Farley had to show up on the phone. Hello? Hi, this is Helen. Hi, yeah. How are you doing? How's this going? I've been praying for you. Oh, wow. You remember? Yeah. I, I, this is my ministry, of course. That's what I'm called to do, to remember. And she's praying. How is this going? How's this going? All right. What are your new prayer requests? I tell her, thank you. Let me get to the Lord in prayer now. All the time. All the time. They kept a notebook. They showed me their notebook. Here's so many times they were committed to praying for the saints. And so here we have these two individuals, ordinary people, Simeon and Anna, who are waiting on the Lord, who had to wake up each day just like us and decide, I'm going to keep trusting in the Lord who created me and loves me. I'm going to live for him rather than just living for myself. I'm going to open myself up and not close myself off. They're waiting. What are you waiting for today? What are you waiting for? Waiting for a new job? Waiting for a relationship? Waiting for the healing of a relationship? Waiting for a wayward child to come home? Waiting for a treatment to, to work. Waiting is hard. It's a test. Will you keep trusting God? Will you keep hope alive? Will you stay faithful to him knowing that in Christ right now you have all you need? Simeon and Anna were waiting. But then on what seemed like an ordinary day, everything Everything changed for both of them. Simeon's walking into the temple like he does every day. Mary and Joseph are there dedicating this baby, Jesus, to God. And Simeon lays eyes on this child. And the Holy Spirit confirms, this is the one! That <laughs> He literally says, Lord, now I can depart in peace. Lord, now I can die in peace. 
He's not even a priest, and he takes that baby up in his arms, and he does this impromptu baby dedication. He marvels at this child, and then he speaks this unique prophecy, this unique prophecy. Anna, same way. She didn't, she didn't even know she was going to meet the Messiah. She's just devoting herself to prayer. She walks in the temple. She sees this baby, and she just runs out. I don't even know if she says anything to Mary Joseph. She just runs out, and she shares the good news with everybody. The Savior we've been waiting for, the Redeemer, he's, he's here. This is the time. It's now. This is our moment. Look, I don't know what you're waiting for. I don't know what you're waiting on. I know what I'm waiting on. I know there's probably deep pain associated with what you're waiting for. What I also know is in the hardship of waiting, God can sustain you. He can strengthen you. He can keep hope alive as you devote yourself to walking with him by faith. And finally, lesson three. Jesus' faithfulness demands a commitment of faith. Jesus' faithfulness demands a commitment of faith. Simeon takes the baby in his arms and he blesses God. And then he says, Lord, now I can depart in peace. Lord, now I can die because my eyes have seen your salvation. He didn't just say, because now this child will bring salvation. He is looking into the eyes of salvation. That's really cool. Then verse 31, 32, he makes clear Jesus didn't just come to bring salvation to Israel. He came to bring, to be a savior to all peoples, even the Gentiles. He, he comes to bring a light and a glory for all people. And then he says something really interesting to Mary. Verse 34, Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, behold, this, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel. And for a sign that is opposed, and a sword, a sword will pierce, pierce through your own soul also, so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. That doesn't sound like a blessing, <laughs> but it is. This is the first indication that the ministry of Jesus isn't just going to be, wow, miracles and amazing teaching. No, this is the first sign that the ministry of Jesus will have opposition. It will include suffering, both for Jesus and for others. He says, Jesus will cause many people to rise and many people to fall. What does that mean? It means this, that the real Jesus is polarizing. The real Jesus is polarizing. You can't be neutral about Jesus. He doesn't allow you to be neutral. Why? Here's why. Two things. Because of the insulting nature of his claims... And because of the attractiveness of his life. The insult, think about how incredibly insulting Jesus' claims are. Here's one of them Jesus said to his disciples, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Right there, Jesus offended every other religion. He says, No other religion actually leads to God, only I do. Everyone else is wrong except me, Jesus says. That's insulting, isn't it? The audacity to claim such exclusivity. You can't admire Jesus and reject this claim. Not only that, Jesus claimed to be God in the flesh. 
He literally said in the Sermon on the Mount that he has authority to send people to heaven or to hell. And it all depends on whether you believe in him or not. That's the basis of where you will spend eternity, and Jesus gets to decide that. Consider the audacity and maybe even the arrogance to say such a thing if it's not true. He literally demands complete allegiance. He says, if anyone will come after me, anyone wants to be a follower of me, you must deny yourself, take up your own cross, and follow me. There is no middle ground with those claims. There's no saying, I like some of that, and I don't like some others, but Jesus is okay. No, if those aren't true, the guy's a, the guy's a, a wacko. No man deserves your allegiance or your adoration like that. No one, unless he's the very creator of your soul. Unless he came to take away the guilt and the shame by taking the punishment of your sin on the cross. Unless he can restore what sin and death have stolen from us. That's the real Jesus. And not only are his claims insulting, but his life was just absolutely attractive. You have this dichotomy, this, this, this connection between absolutely insulting claims and his absolutely beautiful life. Uh, as much as people in history have bristled at the things he has said, they acknowledged he lived a beautiful life. I mean, Jesus lived with stunning humility, a deep compassion and tenderness toward people. I mean, he went out of his way to show grace to those who didn't deserve it. He responded to his critics and his, and his enemies with great wisdom. People flocked to be around Jesus. There has never been anyone who's lived the life of Jesus, or even close. Rising and falling. Jesus is a polarizing figure. That's what Simeon's predicting. Some will love him, some will hate him. You can't be neutral with Jesus. That's why C.S. Lewis said, famously, Jesus is either a liar, a lunatic, or he is Lord. Either he's a liar, and why would you trust a pathological liar who thinks he's God? Or he's a lunatic, he's just out of his mind. I don't really base my eternity on a lunatic, so forget that. Or what he said is true, and he really is who he is, then those are your options. If he's, if he's a liar or a lunatic, you ought to reject him. If he is God, you ought to bow in submission. And look, there's plenty of people today, and I would say increasingly in our culture, who want to have nothing to do with Jesus, right? They know his claims, they hear it for themselves, and they go, yeah, I don't want that. Uh, well, at least they're being consistent. But there are also many people today who are completely sold out for Jesus. Many people right here in our church who, who want to use your, who, who seek to use your lives, your talents, your resources, your abilities to make Jesus famous, and it's beautiful. It's incredible. And yet there are many people who are just still in that middle ground, who are kind of somewhere in the middle. Maybe that's where you are today. You like Jesus, but you don't love Jesus. You accept some of his teaching, but you reject others. And I just ask you, how is that possible? The only way that's possible is because you don't actually know the real Jesus. The, real, the, the Jesus whom you can pick and choose, that, 
Can I just say, that's a figment of your imagination. He's a myth. The Jesus who only teaches that we ought to love our enemies and do good to those around us, the Jesus who only teaches that, there's no historical evidence for that. That version of Jesus. The real Jesus said, you either build your life upon him as the rock, or he's the rock who will ultimately crush you. Those are the only options. This is the good news of Jesus. Jesus, and we've sang about it so perfectly, so beautifully. Jesus lived a perfect life. He obeyed God's law perfectly. He died the death we should have died, paying the penalty for our sin, so that now if you turn from your sin and trust in Jesus alone, God credits you with the perfect righteousness, the perfect record of Jesus, and he gives you his gift of eternal life. That's the gospel. That's the good news. By grace, as a gift, he adopts you into God's family. He loves you unconditionally. So whether you live or die, you're God's. You belong to him. So how do you respond to this good news? Do you admit that you're a sinner and need a savior to rescue you from sin? And I would say if that's where you are, if you recognize that for the first time, turn to Jesus right now in faith and receive him as your savior. Listen, Jesus isn't just the stumbling, a stumbling block. He tells Mary, a sword will pierce your own soul so that many hearts will be revealed. He's predicting that Mary will have much sorrow in life. That even though Jesus comes to bring peace, like Simeon says, it's a peace that comes through conflict. A sword is, is an instrument of conflict. How does Jesus pierce hearts that our thoughts are revealed? Here's one way that he does that. Many ways. Well, here's one way. It's by the sting of repentance. Jesus pierces our hearts by exposing our sin. Hebrews 4 says the same thing about the word of God. That it's a two-edged sword, living and active. And it pierces the soul and, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Jesus is a sword, and he, and he brings the pain of exposing our sinful hearts, which should then lead us to repentance. Repentance hurts. Keller once said, repentance is like a, an antiseptic. You ever put an antiseptic on a wound? First it stings, then it heals. That's repentance. First it stings, then it heals. And the only way to experience the peace of Christ is through the sting of repentance. It's like the cutting of a surgeon. Why would I ever let this man or woman cut into my body? Because unless you do, that thing in your body will kill you. But if you let this, let this surgeon cut, it'll be a healing cut. Have you repented of your sin? Can you admit freely your wrongs that you've done, selfish words, thoughts? Look, I'm not just talking to non-Christians. I'm talking to you, Christian. If you think I'm talking to your husband, I'm talking to the wrong person. If you think I'm talking to your kids, I'm talking to the wrong person. If you think I'm talking to someone who's not saved, I'm talking to, I'm talking to you and I. Martin Luther famously said, all of life is repentance. Okay, now that I have your attention, Okay. Have you repented? Are you repenting? Christian, do you need to dig even deeper and cry out to Jesus in desperation? 
Are you not just repenting of the sin, but repenting of the sin beneath the sin? We've talked about this before, and we'll talk about it again in a couple weeks. The reason you keep going back to those sinful tendencies is because you don't believe that God's love is real. Real enough to cleanse you. Real enough to expose in order to heal you. And you've closed yourself up and it's festering and it's killing you and your relationships. And God is saying, will you let me bring the antiseptic of repentance? The, the, the cut of repentance that first hurts, then heals. Let the sting of repentance take you down the path of peace. Mary would have a, soul, a, a sword pierce her soul. She would have to watch her own son, beaten, bloodied, totally disgraced on a cross. And that sting in part would be the sting of her own sin that, that put him there. And yet that was nothing in comparison to, to the sword that would pierce Jesus' own soul. The sword of our sin. The sword that would lay us bare the sword that literally laid upon Jesus all of our sin, all of our shame, all of our condemnation. Jesus took the sting for us. And Mary felt it, watching him die. But listen, in his resurrection, she finally got it. In his resurrection, she knew Jesus is the Lord's salvation. Eventually it became clear to her and it, it becomes clear to every believer in Jesus. He's the light for our darkness, like Simeon says. He's the glory that we're all seeking. Eventually we can say, no matter what happens, no matter what hardships, no matter what struggles, we can say, now I can depart in peace. Did you know that? Why can we say that? Because, as Paul says, because our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs our troubles. Can you say, if today's the day, I can depart in peace? You see, like Simeon and Anna, we're also waiting. Not for Jesus to come, but for him to come back. We're waiting for the ultimate consolation, the ultimate comfort and redemption of the world. And so, church, let me just say, keep looking to Jesus. He promises to give us everything we need to be faithful to him, even in the midst of our hardships. He is faithful. He will do it. Let's pray. Father, we worship you. We honor you as the great law keeper, dying on behalf of us lawbreakers to redeem us from the curse of the law, to give us the blessing of the law, life in your presence, fullness of your presence. This is what we all need. Lord, this is what we all long for. I pray, that, I pray for those who may be wrestling with the claims of Jesus, wrestling with the, the unique, exclusive claims. I know even for myself, it can feel like rising or falling. Lord, I pray for hearts to be softened, for you to enter in and show what seems like, what seems like something that would crush 
If we, would, if we submit everything to you, how do we know? How do we know we can trust you? How do we know you'll make good? How do we know that this is the path? And we can just look to the cross and remember, this is the God who loves us. Bring salvation right now. Bring the, the sting that leads to healing right now to those who might need to put their trust in Christ alone today. God, for every believer here, everyone who's wrestling with a hardship that we don't think is fair, that we don't, we don't like, it, it's casting a shadow, a dark shadow over our days. Whatever that hardship is, Lord, would you, by your spirit, would you shine a ray of hope Use your word today. Use your spirit today. Use the people of God today. Use a song today. Use the preaching of your word. Whatever it takes, Lord, today I pray there will be a ray of hope shining, breaking through the clouds, reminding every believer that you are faithful to complete what you started. You never leave anything unfinished. We want to learn to trust you. We believe. Help our unbelief. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.